Welcome to Untold Stories of the Torah, a masterclass in Jewish history, presented by Rabbi Shmuel Aber. Part two of the story of Yehoinasan. What we spoke about in part one was that the Plishtim had gathered an army of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, and so much infantry that literally was a sand of the seashore. And the Jewish people were on a different mountain facing the Plishti army with 1,600 soldiers and two swords. So the odds were, in, were tremendously in favor of the Plishtim. And Yonason was unsure, as we spoke about in the previous class, of whether he should attack, or he was sure, but he wanted to encourage his weapon bearer who was with him, and so he makes a sign. He says like this, If the enemy, upon seeing us, as we climb down to the rock at the bottom of the, between the cliff faces, and then start to climb up, if they see us, and they say, wait and we'll come to you, then we should wait in the valley and not, and not fight. But if they say, come to us, this is a sign that Hashem has given them into our hands and we should, we should attack. So, so Yonasan and his weapon bearer reveal themselves to the Plishtim. And the Plishtim, they see these two Jewish people pop up from the ground. And they assume that these are the Jews that have gone into hiding. Remember, at the beginning of the war, it was still a small army. But Shaul had a lot more men. So many of them had, had gone into hiding, had gone into pits and caves, had even crossed the Jordan in such fear of the army, that, uh, the, the war that was to happen. And so these Pelishtim had uh, saw two men just appear. They had no idea that it was the crown prince and his weapon bearer. They just saw two Jews. And they said, well, look at this. Two of them must have accidentally you know, popped up on the, the wrong side of the mountain. They lifted their voice and they say like this. They said, behold, behold, Hebrews are coming forth from the halls where they hid. And they then addressed themselves to Yehoinasan and said, come to us. We have something to show you. We, or we will show you something. The sign that Yehoinasan made was that they would say, come to us. So that's a sign that we should really come to them and we should attack them. They had actually they'd said exactly what Yehoinasan had, had predicted and this was a sign from Hashem that Yonason was supposed to attack them. The Mitzudas David says that the Plishtim were mocking Yonason. It was almost like, come to us, we have something to show you. And of course, they, they, that was just a way for them to, to mock Yonason as they planned to kill him and to kill his men. What's really interesting in Lakuti Teir, it's brought down that the Plishtim, they represent um, Litsanas. They, they represent mockery and, 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 and you know, impure laughter and you could see that Avraham and Yitzchak, when they dealt with the Plishtim, when they were building wells, etc., the the relationship they had, the way that they were able to stomp up the 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 wells of of Avraham. But when it came to Yitzchak, they weren't able to gather that negative energy from Yitzchak, which is a very interesting discussion. But this idea of them having mockery is a, is a, is an integral part of it. And literally, in the story right here, you see how they saw Yonas and then they started to mock him. Now, Yonasan had seen his prediction come true. It, as he had described to his weapon bearer, that's exactly as they had said. So he tells the weapon bearer, come after me, because Hashem's delivered them into the hands of the, of the Jewish people. He credited Hashem and he said, Hashem, this is a sign we need. We can attack them. So Yonasan ascends on his hands and feet. Rashi says he ascends with all his might and the weapon bearer 
was was behind him, you know, ch- chasing right behind him to to start the attack. The Radak says that the ascent up the second mountain, you know, to where the Plishtim were gathered, it was so steep. The reason why it says Yonison was on his hands and feet because he literally was climbing upwards to get to the top of the mountain, and straight away Yonison attacks the Plishtim. He's attacking an army. He's attacking just him and and one man with him. He's attacking thirty thousand chariots, six thousand cavalry and so much infantry there's not even a number ascribed to it and in one fell swoop the first attack around 20 men were killed in a very small space and even though the enemy could have helped each other out Jonas still managed to get the best of him I mean it's 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 the type of it's a type of story that, that it's it's difficult to wrap your head around how it's even possible that Jonasson was this courageous and that Jonasson was so successful just attacking an army by himself with, with one man following behind. And as Jonasson felled a plishti, the weapon bearer would kill that person right behind him. And, then, and literally, straight away, around 20 men sp- uh, uh, were, were, were killed in a very small land space. And then a deep fear went into the plishtim. And the ground shook. Or as the Masudas said, as the Masudas writes in his commentary, it was as if the ground shook. The, the, the fear that was in, in that they hit the plishtim at that point when they saw what Yonason was, was able to do, they had a deep fear. A fear of Hashem was upon them, says the Pasuk. The Radak says, and we, we had the similar idea in the earlier on in the earlier podcast when we talked about the size of Nineveh, how large the city was. When we want to attribute something that's extremely large or has astronomical proportions, we describe it associating to Hashem. So in this case, you say a fear of Hashem. It was such a great fear. We don't have good description to explain how feared the plishtim were of the Jewish people at that point when Yonason just goes in and attacks them. So it was like a fear of Hashem. It was so large. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the mountain, Shoal's scouts, who are very carefully watching for movement on the other side of the mountain, see complete chaos unfolding. Rashi writes that their, their positions were entirely broken, just by two men. Yonason and his man had started attacking the enemy, and it was so fear, they were in so much fear, that literally they broke lines entirely. They were running in all directions, they were even running towards the Jewish people because the confusion was so great, and the lack of order of their movements during the war, that's the worst thing possible, but the scouts rushed to Shaul to tell Shaul, this is what's going on on the other side of the Plishim. Some There's chaos unfolding. So Shaul quickly tells his men to investigate who's missing. Obviously, some, some, someone on their camp had, had, had caused this, who was missing. And the only two people that were missing was Yehonasan and his weapon bearer. So now King Shaul wants to know, what should he do? Yonason's gone, you know, without permission, just left them and started attacking the enemy together with his man. And now, now King Shaw wants to know what to do. So he calls the Kayan Gadol, who was there at the time. Now, this Kayan Gadol is a person who's mentioned earlier on in history, or at least there's been a reference to his family earlier on in history. His name was Achia ben Achitov. Achia ben Achitov was the nephew of someone who had mentioned earlier on, whose name was Ichavoid. So a little bit of a little bit of history just to understand the context. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but just a touch of history, a touch of background. Earlier on in history, the the Gadol was a man by the name of Eli. Eli was the teacher of Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, and he was a descendant of Aaron, but from the fourth son. Pinchas had been punished, and so the line of the high priest no longer continued through Pinchas, at least at this point. It was to go back it was to go later on back into Pinchas' family. But at this point, it still was in the in Ailey's family. Ailey's two sons were killed in an earlier war against the Plishtim, and now 
the Achia ben Achituv, who was a grandson of one of the sons of Eli, was now the Kohen Gadol. So it was still inside that family. He had joined the the war together with the Ur Vatum, which was the the breastplate that the Kohen Gadol would wear. And on the breastplate was twelve stones, and on each stone, as we're going to mention in a little bit, go into more detail, was a name of one of the tribes. And behind the stone was a parchment with Hashem's name on it. And if someone had a question from Hashem, it wasn't someone, it's only special people, leaders of the Jewish people, kings, etc., and leaders. If they had a question from Hashem, they would go to the Kohen Gadol and they would address their question to Hashem. And based on the, on the, the answer, the answer would, be, would light up in the names on the stones, different letters would line up and they would have to reconfigure the answer to understand what message Hashem had for the Jewish people. So King Shaul wants to know now, should he go to war? And so he asked the Koyen Gadol, come here, let's, let's ask Hashem the question. But as the chaos on the other side of the mountain continued to unfold, King Shoal tells the Koyen Gadol, hold back your hand, don't ask the question from Hashem. King Shaul didn't want to hear the answer from Hashem because he saw the miracle unfolding. He saw complete chaos un- unfolding with the plishti sides. He said, I have no reason to ask anymore. This is clear indication that I need to go to war. I need to go fight against the Plishtim because the, the, you know, the, the panic and the fear that they're experiencing is a sign from Hashem that we're going to be successful in the war. So he told the high priest, he told Achia, hold back your hand, don't ask Hashem, we're going to go forward. Now, the, the Shiloi had been destroyed, the, the destruction of Shiloi, the, where the Mishkan had been, had been destroyed earlier on. The Malbim explains that the Orin, where, you know, the, where the, the Ark didn't have an actual set place, so wherever the people were, that's where the Ark went. Once they recoronated Shaul in Gilgal, which is a city, and this is not really within the context of this story, they had brought the Orin to the city of Gilgal, and then it made its way to the war. But he tells the high priest, don't ask Hashem, we're going to move forward. And what's really sad and tragic is, Vayikharaba, Medrash Tehillim actually comments, it says that later on, and we'll get to the story later on, when King Shaul loses his kingship, it says that the angels who saw how pure and special King Shaul was, they were very upset. Why is Hashem appointing King David to be the next king? Why is King Shaul losing his his position of king, he's so righteous. And Hashem pointed to this story, says the Medrash, and says, when King Shaul had an opportunity to ask Hashem a question, instead of getting the answer from Hashem and, and just respecting whatever decision Hashem would give, King Shaul said, you know what, I'd rather not ask the question, I'd rather just move forward regardless, because now's a good opportunity. David HaMelech was going to have a very similar story in his own time of kingship. And Hashem said, in that story, when King David was told, don't go to battle until you hear the rustling of the trees, his men were pressing him so hard to begin fighting. And King David, David HaMalach, would not start the battle until the sign Hashem had given was fulfilled. So not only did David HaMalach, King David, ask continuously over and over, should he do this, should he do that? And any question, large or small, he would always ask Hashem. Once he got that indication, he would not move until that sign had been fulfilled. So Hashem said, yes, King Shaul is so special, but King David, David HaMalch, is something special entirely. So King Shaul, meanwhile, screams out and gathers all the troops, and he leads them right into war. The odds were still entirely not 
favorable to the Jewish people, but the first fall of war is the chaos and the confusion, and the confusion continued to amplify. The Plishtim were in such a state of confusion, the rabbis explained, they were killing each other. They were so panicked, they, they, they had no idea what was going on. And meanwhile... So many of the Jews who now saw what was going on, they were paying attention to, to the war. They were paying attention to all the people that were, that were gathered against the Jewish people. They were too scared to join. But now that they see how favorable the war is towards the Jewish people, they quickly gathered together around Shaul and they joined in. So now Shaul had more men. There were also people that had been forcibly conscripted into the Plishti army. They were little villages that lived right next to the Plishti land. And against their will, they were literally forced to fight against their fellow Jews. And their families were back home and they knew that if they wouldn't participate um, effectively, the Plishtim would murder all their families and murder their cities. And so they were forced into fighting against the Jewish people. But now that they saw the tables, the tables turn, they quickly joined the Jewish people and they fell upon them. They weren't even worried about retribution because the panic and confusion that the Plishtim were in at that moment was so intense, there was no way they could keep track of who was where and what was going on. So now King Shaul had a, had a force and all these people joined in together with him and they started chasing after the enemy and the enemy ran. They didn't hold ground. They literally ran and King Shaul starts chasing after these men and it was an extremely successful war. Now, King Shaul saw this as an opportunity. For decades, they had been persecuted mercilessly by the Plishtim. And now, finally, there was a, there, there, there was a chance. The, um, finally, King Shaul got them in a position where he wanted them to be. The last thing he wanted was for the momentum to stop. He needed the Jewish people to keep fighting and fight until the war was officially done and the Plishtim wouldn't be able to be a problem ever again. So King Shaul told the Jewish people, keep chasing and don't stop. And in order to ensure that they wouldn't stop and to ensure that they would stay active in the war, King Shaul made an announcement. He made a decree. And he said, any person that eats bread until evening will be cursed because King Shaul didn't want people to start having lunch breaks. He needed people to be continuously fighting. So long as the momentum was hot and the Jewish people were running right behind the Plishtim, they would be able to be successful. The second they stopped, the Plishtim would regroup or the Plishtim would, would, would um, run back home. And that's what King Shaul couldn't have. So he made this decree, this curse, this decree, this proclamation. Once they chased into Evan Ha'ez, base Alvin, sorry, King Shaul made the announcement, no one's to eat bread until evening. Now, that, the, the details of that curse and that decree is very important, as we're going to see in a moment. But the Jewish people listened. They were extremely hungry. They were so stressed during, due to the hunger. At the same time, no one ate because King Shaul had made this massive announcement, no one's to eat anything. Now, the terminology that King Shaul uses is no one's to eat bread. But as we know, bread is like the generic term for food so this included as an extension of the definition of bread it included all foods not just bread all types of food were included in this decree king Shaul basically said no one's to stop just keep on fighting until until the war is over there's, a, there's an interesting discussion that marvin brings down about what exactly the decree was some people say that it was already a fast day because it was a, it was a day of sorrow the jewish people had to go to war so they were already fasting and king Shaul said I'm extending it. You can't start eating now. You need to wait until the fighting is over. Or some people say that they weren't allowed to have a full meal. That was really um, King Shaul's proclamation. They weren't allowed to have a full meal, but the Jewish people understood the gist of his proclamation and they all committed among themselves, no one's eating anything. 
Now, they continued chasing the enemy, and at some point they chased the enemy through the forest. And the forest had um, um, bees, and the bees had made honey, and the honey had, had you know, come out of the comb, the honeycombs, and it was oozing onto the floor of the forest. People really wanted to eat, and they could have just dipped their sticks in, and uh, dipped their hands into the floor and grabbed all this, all this honey, but no one took it because they all heard this massive announcement from King Shaul, and so no one took it. Even though the, the food was literally oozing in all directions as they were chasing after the enemy, everyone, not a single Jewish person, succumbed to hunger, and everyone decided to listen to the proclamation. The only person who didn't was the person that didn't hear it. Two people weren't around when King Shaul had made his announcement. That was Yonasan and his weapon bearer. So Yonason, not hearing the curse, the decree of King Shaul, he took his stick, he dipped it into the ground, and he used his hands to his mouth, and he ate, and his eyes lit up. And one of the, one of the soldiers saw Yonason eating, and informed Yonason that King Shaul had made this, made this decree, that no one's allowed to eat. And Yonason said like this, he said that, King Shaul's announcement, he's commenting on his father's decree. He hadn't heard it. He had he'd eaten by accident, but now that he hears the decree, he's like, my father made a big mistake. He's, he's my father, quote the, quote the actual verse, my father's brought trouble on the people because Yonason comments, see for yourself how my eyes have lit up with a little bit of honey. If the people had, had eaten, they could have had a much greater um, war against the Plishtim. So Yonason is basically saying that my father meant well with his decree of telling the Jewish people not to, not to eat because, you know, he wants to maximize the momentum and make sure that no one slows down and starts having meals. But the problem is that without eating, people come weak. And if the Jewish people had eaten, they would have been so much more effective in their battle in chasing away an enemy who had terrorized them and demonized them for decades. The language he uses is Ocher of Yisrael. My, my, father, my father brought trouble or my father muddied the waters by, by making this decree. Now, the thing is that's important to remember, and this is going to be very important for later on in the story, Yonason had three massive excuses why he really wasn't guilty of transgressing his father's decree. Everyone else that had heard the decree very much would have been, would have been guilty of, of, of um, breaking a decree of a king, which is punishable by death. But in the case of Yonason, there were three big details that are important to, to remember. Number one, he'd never heard it. If you hear, if you don't hear a decree of a king and you break it, well, you're in a, it's accident. You know, you can't really be held culpable, culpable for that. Um, the other, the other, the other reason why he wasn't is he only ate a tiny, a tiny amount. It's very doubtful that King Shaw would have minded someone dipping their stick into the into a honey and just taking a quick bite. The idea was, don't have a big meal and don't waste, don't waste time eating. But King Shaul wouldn't have held someone accountable for just having a tiny little drop of honey. And the third reason, which is a really interesting discussion beyond the scope of this class, is that the description in the verse that talks about Yonason's reaction to the honey is that his eyes lit up. That's very, very poignant. It, it, it's telling us something very interesting. There's a very interesting disease. It's mentioned in the Gemara called Bulmis being seized by bulmus sickness. Bulmus is this incredible hunger. It's so, it's so intense that it actually affects the eyesight. I don't know if there's a medical, modern medical correlation between this type of, of sickness or whether it only existed in the olden days, but there was this illness called bulmus, and bulmus was life-threatening, and 
if you, if Jonasson's eyes lit up after he ate it, it's a clear indication he was suffering from that before he ate, which means he wouldn't have been held by the king's decree. His life was in danger. In the case of Bulmis, people eat straight away. You, you, a person's life is you're allowed, you're allowed to um, even break laws entirely to save one's life. In the case of Bulmis. Yonason would have been fully permitted, even had he heard his father's decree, and even if he would have eat, needed to eat a lot, Bumis is life-threatening, and therefore he would, he would have had it. He would have been able to be fully non-guilty by breaking his father's decree, had he eaten in such a situation with such a sickness. Now, the Gemara has a discussion about what to feed a person if they have boomers. And actually, the Gemara uses this example right here. It says, if a person is suffering by boomers, they shouldn't just eat any food, but they should eat sweet food. Because they say, look, Yonason ate honey, and that's what removed the boomers. Now, the Gemara in the end does actually establish that, if, that Yonason didn't, in fact, actually have a case of boomers. But the Gemara still points out that the remedy for the, for the boomers' sickness is, is honey. The Jewish people chased after the enemy from Michmash to Ayulon, which is near the Plishti border. It's a section of Don, near the Plishti border, which is a very, very successful campaign. And at that point, the people became exhausted, and also night fell. The decree of eating was only until night. So now that night had actually fallen... The people who were so unbelievably starved, they wanted to break their fast, they wanted to eat, and so they had now a tremendous amount of spoils of war, and a big part of the spoils of war were animals, and so they slaughtered the animals on the ground, and the people began to eat. And the description is that the people ate on the blood, which is the discussion right now, eating on the blood. And quickly it was reported to Shaul, and he, they, he was told the people are eating on blood. Now, we'll explain what that means, but first you need to understand the, the overall arc of the story. Shaul became extremely upset. He tells the Jewish people, you acted faithlessly. After such an amazing miracle, you're now going to say thank you to Hashem by eating on the blood? Again, we haven't explained what that means yet, but whatever it is, is clearly bad. And so King Shaul makes an announcement. He says, roll a large stone over to me today. He tells everyone, bring a large stone. They bring a large stone. And he makes an announcement that everyone should come and bring the animals. And they're to slaughter the animals on top of this large stone. And the soldiers listen to King Shaul. King Shaul set up a Mizbeach. This was, in fact, the first Mizbeach that King Shaul had set up for Hashem. And it was a very, very momentous occasion because... King Shaul being the first king of the Jewish people, and this is also before the base of Migdash had been built, this is a very big moment because now a king had officially like coronated an actual altar to Hashem, an actual Mizbeach to Hashem. So this became a very, very large moment. The Metzudah says that King Shaul started the, the altar. He brought the large stone, and then more stones were added onto it to actually complete it into a full altar. So... Shaul is only described as bringing the first stone, a massive stone, like the, the, the cornerstone, let's call it, of the Mizbeach, but the rest of it was filled by other people. The Redux, the one that mentions how noteworthy this moment was, and the Rabbagna Barbanel says, they actually say this, the altar wasn't actually built then. King Shaul made a massive stone and told people to sacrifice, to, to slaughter the animals on top of that stone. Later on, King Shaul came back to that place and he saw the large stone and he said, you know what? This is a really appropriate place for me to make my first altar. So he then had the people turn this massive stone 
adding more stones to it and turned it into the foundation of a of a mizbeach of an altar, which became a very very important and 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 noteworthy altar because the first Jewish people. What's really interesting is that Rashi says that King Shaul told the men, "Bring your slaughtering knives." So that he can inspect it to be kosher, which that's something which is very commonplace and very famous that rabbis will inspect the, the ritual slaughter's knife to ensure that it's kosher. King Shaul wanted to make sure that he could take a look at all the knives and make sure that all of them had knives that were kosher and that were acceptable so they would be slaughtering the animals in a proper and halachic way. He also taught them laws concerning the requirements of ritual slaughtering knives, which is a really fascinating topic of its own. Now the question is, let's return back to the real question, now that we have the, the arc of the story in place, what did the Jews do wrong? Well, why did King Shaul have to bring a stone in place, and why did he get so angry at them, calling, the, calling their behavior faithless behavior? What did they do wrong exactly? So it's a very big discussion, and I'll say some of the opinions, just so we can at least cover the topic a little bit. Rashi says that what they did wrong is they, they indiscriminately took animals. Now there's a law in the Torah that says you're not allowed to kill a mother animal and a child animal on the same day. Because they were in such a rush to just eat, they were starved so badly, and now finally night had fallen, they just took any animals without actually determining, wait a second, is this the mother and this is the child? If that's the case, we can only have one of them, we have to save the other one for another day because we can't eat them both on the same day. The Gemara and Rashi brings us down, but so this David brings us down. And this, this is a very important thrust of the opinion, and it really, it really lines in with the story very nicely, is before eating these animals, they had dedicated these animals as peace offerings to Hashem. So what they did is they slaughtered the animal, and they collected the blood of the animals to sprinkle against the altar. But of course, they didn't have an altar because they were in the middle of nowhere, and they had just... They had just been fighting the whole day. They were they, they had no way to have a, have an have a uh, uh, altar to sprinkle the blood upon. So what they did is they collected the blood and they kept the blood on the side and they began to eat. Now that's a sin. You're not, you, the, the order is if your person's having a peace offering, peace offerings can be eaten, but first you need to sprinkle the blood on the altar and then you eat the animal. They had just put the blood on the side and started eating. And in that case, it was a very, very big sin because they had eaten on the blood. In this case, it doesn't mean on the blood literally. It means while the blood has not yet been sprinkled, they were already eating. Now, there's a whole nother thrust of what they had done wrong. And this is a very interesting discussion. The Radak and the Ramban bring down a very interesting um, set of opinions. There's a difference between the two. But the Ramban says like this, they had eaten the animals in the same location where they had slaughtered it. And this has to do with very old witchcraft, idol-worshipping behavior. There was this type of witchcraft where a person would slaughter an animal and then straight away, before the blood could drain out of the animal, would eat the animal with the blood of that animal all around. And this was like an invitation to demons to join the meal. And when the, when the demons would join the meal, the demons would then tell the people at the meal about future events. The Jewish people had been tyrannized by the Plishtim for decades. And they had won a very successful war, but it was far from over. Now they wanted to know what's going to be happening to us next. So King Shaul sees them sitting around with blood all around and they're eating in the same location where the blood was. And King Shaul said, how could you betray Hashem after Hashem has done all these amazing things to you? We have 
are high priests here who were able to ask questions directly from God about how we're supposed to behave and what future events are going to be. And meanwhile, you're doing idol-worshipping, witchcraft behavior by eating on top of the blood, literally in this case, on top of the blood. So that's why King, it really explains why King Shaul's reaction was of such upset against the Jewish. How could the Jewish people behave in such a way like this, um, um, doing demon blood practices right after God had made such an amazing, incredible miracle for them? The Rambag, possibly the Rambag, argue on the Ramban, and they say that they weren't actually doing witchcraft behavior, but they were eating on top of the blood which is like witchcraft behavior. They weren't trying to do any witchcraft. They were just in a rush. So they slaughtered it. They slaughtered the animal and they ate it there on that same spot. They didn't have any witchcraft intentions. But King Charles said, how could you behave like it? It looked, it looked so bad. You can't, the rule is if you do slaughtering, you have to eat your animal in a different location so you're not eating on top of the blood. Otherwise people will accuse you of doing this. So even though their intention was very, wasn't, um, duplicitous or against God, it just looked very bad. So King Charles got upset and said, you can't do this. Both of these explanations really explain why King Shaul solved this problem by rolling a massive stone. He rolled a massive stone and said, okay, slaughter your animals on top of this stone. Let the blood seep down the stone. And then take your animal, go to another location and eat your animal there. That way, either you're not actually doing demon, witchcraft, idol-worshipping behavior, or even according to Raal it doesn't look bad. It looks like you're not, you have no connection to it at all. The Chiskuni brings a very different reason. He says that King Shaul accused them of not slaughtering the animals before he ate before eating them. And that's the reason why he got that's the reason why he got upset. The discussion is a lot more involved and a lot more there are a lot more opinions. I just want to give you a little taste of, of this discussion because this prohibition of eating on the eating on the blood, which is a prohibition mentioned in Vayikra, a lot of the commentators who try to understand what does the Torah mean, they point towards this very story of Yonasan and the, the war of Michmash to try to understand because what exactly the eating on the blood means, King Shaul clearly accused the Jewish people of doing that. After the people ate, King Shaul wanted to continue the battle. Usually people don't continue battles at war, but in this case, the, the, the successful traje- trajectory of the war was something King Shaul wanted to act upon and wanted to utilize. And so he calls the people and tells the people, I want to continue going to war. And the people said, whatever you want to do, they supported King Shaul. Whatever's good in your eyes, the, Jew- the Jewish people said, we'll do. Now, at this point, the Koyan Gadol who we mentioned earlier on, who had almost been asked to ask Hashem for what to do next, he comes to Shaul and he cautions King Shaul. He says, it might be a good idea before just continue, continuing the war to first ask Hashem what, what to do next. Why, why did, did Achia advise the, the king to do this? Because he said, it could be that in the meantime, the Plishtim have regrouped and it's not as chaotic as, you know, it could have been a few hours since they started eating. Um, it's not clear how long it went, how long, how much time had gone by. But the point was, it could be that the dynamics had shifted during that time. And Achia warns the king, don't just go rushing into a battle now. Now you don't know what's going on in the Plishti side. First ask Hashem, and then whatever Hashem tells you to do, you could do. So King Shaul liked that advice, and he actually asked Hashem. He asked Hashem two questions. Should I go after the Plishtim and will you deliver them into the hands of the Jewish people? And there was no answer. And this was very problematic. King Shaul asked the question from Hashem. Uh, it was by way of the Urim Vatum, there was the, by way of the breastplate with the 12 stones with each one of the tribe's um, names engraved on one of the 12 stones. And there was no 
answer from Hashem. And King Shaul knew that the only way there'd be no answer from Hashem would be if someone sinned against him. If someone sinned among the Jewish people and it was enough of a sin that would make Hashem upset, make God angry, well, in that case, Hashem wouldn't answer them. So now King Shaul's motive was less about continuing the war. He wanted to do that too, but now he needed to work out why is it that Hashem isn't answering us. The mom actually does a little bit of detective work, and he says that King Shaul understood the fact that the Jewish people had experienced such an incredible miracle clearly indicates that whatever the sin was, it hadn't happened before the war begun. Because in that case, God would have never done a miracle this great for them. So King Shaul knew that the time frame of when the sin had occurred was sometime after the war had begun until this point that he had asked the question. So he had a time frame to work with. Now he just needed to work out, okay, who is the one that did the sin that's causing Hashem not to answer answer back to us? So he calls all the chiefs of all the people, the leaders of the different tribes, to see why Hashem didn't answer. But before beginning to determine, King Shaul makes this incredibly bold statement. He says like this, and I'll read it in Hebrew. Ki chai Hashem it's just like the translation goes like this For as Hashem lives, who brings victory to the Jewish people, even if it was through, and the, the, the commentators say, This sin, my son, Yonah's son, he shall be put to death. And no one answered him. King, King Shaul was trying to tell the Jewish people, I don't care who did the sin, even if the sin was done by Yonah's son, my son. That person's going to be put to death. Now, this, as, as people following the story so far realize the irony of it, that, that sin was done through Yonason, but King Shaul was trying to show so clearly that I don't care who did the sin. If it's the lowest person, even if it's the greatest person, my own son, um, Prince Yonason, even if he's the one, he would be put to death for, for doing the sin. No one answered King Shaul. So King Shaul split the Jewish people into half. So he wanted to make a lottery. Lotteries already had an incredible precedent in Jewish history that lotteries determine, you know, truth in Judaism. So King Shaul makes a lottery, but he makes the lottery a little different than usual. In the case of uh, earlier on times in history, there was 12 lotteries with each 12 tribes, and then it was further divided into different houses based on which, which tribe was picked, and then families, and then person, etc. In this particular case, Yonason splits the lottery in two. He puts himself and his son in one side of the lottery, and he puts all the Jewish people on the other side of the lottery. And the question is, it's a very strange way to organize the lottery. Lotteries are never organized in that way. So why did King Shaul make the lottery in such a way with him and his son on one side, with 50% of the chances of going to him and his son, and then 50% on the other side? So the Abayabinah says a really interesting, a very compelling explanation, which really changes the story quite a lot. If you remember earlier on when Yonason was eating, there was a soldier who saw him. And the soldier warned him, your father told you not to, that warned us not to eat anything. And Yonason says, well, my father made a big mistake. But nonetheless, you know, Yonason at that point was held by it, but he had accidentally done it. That soldier had gone to King Shaul afterwards and he had ratted out Yonason. He said, listen, I want to tell you something. Your son's the one that broke the, broke the decree. So Jonas, King Saul, according, according to one opinion, already had a very good idea of who was responsible for the Hashem not answering them, for the, the, the Urim Vatumim of the high priest not giving out an answer. So he said, let's just cut to the chase. Let's put me and my son on one side and all the rest of the Jewish people on the other side. And that's an easy, an, an, an easy way out to quickly get to the results of who's actually responsible, my son Jonas. 
Another explanation, also from that Barbanel, is that, and this one is extremely compelling and such an incredible lesson, and really shows you the virtue of King Shaul. King Shaul was worried that people would think that because he was a king, or that his son was a prince, they were somehow better and above any form of guilt or responsibility. Remember, he's the first king. This is a new precedent, a new scenario in Judaism. And King Shaul wanted to lay the law from the very beginning. Everyone should know, just because he's the king, or just because his son Jonas is the crown prince, does not make them above the law. They're held accountable equal to everyone else. The only way he could do that would, would be to make it so clear that the lottery is affecting him and his son equally to everyone else. So he made the odds skewed so badly against him, literally making 50% of the, not only two lotteries, one with him and his son and one with all the rest of the Jewish people. But he wanted to set the message very early on in his kingdom, very early on for everyone, that he's not above the letter of the law and he's also going to be a part of this accountability and a, and a part of this raffle. A beautiful lesson. Pika de says, that King Shaul, King Shaul saw the Plishtim starting to return. He saw them already starting to come to refight against the Jewish people. They were gathering in an organized way. So he goes to the high priest and he sees all the stones shining. The only one he doesn't see is the tribe of Benjamin. King Shaul came from the tribe of Benjamin, came from the tribe of Benjamin, and he sees all the other tribes, their stones are shining aside for his. And when he asks the question, no answer comes, and he understood that this was the answer. And he understood the fact that it was shining with his own tribe, it meant that it was either him or his son. So the reason why he divided it by him and his son versus all the Jewish people, the Medrash says, he already had a very good idea that it was either himself or his son. But at the same time, for a matter of com completeness, he needed to add all the Jewish people in. He put him, him and his son, and then he put it against all the rest of the Jewish people. And at that point, he, had a, he, he already was able to know what was, actually going, what was actually going on. And then King Shaul calls out to Hashem, and he says this proclamation. He says, Hava Tomim. He asks Hashem, please make the lottery truthful. Don't just make it a chance lottery, you know, with the odds 50-50. Make it accurate. The Abramina says, King Shaul was asking Hashem, I know you didn't answer me directly through the high priest's breastplate, the way that the kings usually were answered. But King Shaul was saying, Hashem, Hashem, at least make this lottery accurate. So at least we can determine with accuracy who's actually responsible for the, for the Hashem not speaking to us. Now, the lottery fell out on King Shaul and Yonison. It was a 50 chance, or it wasn't a 50, it was a 100% chance because King Shaul asked Hashem to make it accurate. So when the lottery came out between the two lots, King Shaul and Yonison was were picked out, making all the Jewish people all free of guilt. They were all relieved. And now King Shaul draw, draws another set of lots between himself and his son, and the lot fell out on his son. And as soon as it fell out on his son, the Medrash says, Pekadrabeleza says, King Shaul pulled out his sword to kill his son. And he asked his son, what do you do? Now, at this point, Yonison's, he's, faced with, he's faced with the truth. You know, the lottery literally sh showed that he was the one that was guilty. And so he told his father the story. He told his father he tasted the honey at the tip of the stick. And he also told his fa father, and it again shows you the incredible virtue and the, the, the incredible uh, upliftedness of Yonison's personality. He said he's willing to die. He has no complaints. He's more than happy to. He's more than happy to die. And in fact, very differently than the first time when he ate and he was informed of his father's decree. This time he didn't justify it. Now that he had seen his name come up, 
He understood he'd done something wrong. There was no reason to justify or give any excuses and say, well, his father made a mistake. He didn't get into any of that. He just said, I'm the one that did the thing wrong. And he had a million excuses. He had so many good excuses. He didn't mention any of them. He said, I'm the one that did it. My name came on the lottery. I'm ready to die. So now that he had, he had agreed, he admitted to his guilt, King Shaul makes a vow that he's going to kill his son, Yonason. And he, that was it. Now it's time to kill his son. And as soon as the army sees what's actually going down, quickly the, the, the entire Jewish people step in between. They say, wait a second, this, is, this can't happen. King Shaul's about to kill the person who's responsible for the entire victory. The, the person who had so selflessly cl- um, climbed across to the other side of the enemy and attacked an unbeatable enemy, just the two of them, and, and started off the most, one of the most successful campaigns in Jewish history. They said he can't die. So they turned to Shaul and they said, shall Yonason die after bringing such a great victory to the Jewish people? They said, never, Halilo. As Hashem lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. They defended the Jewish people. And they annulled King Shaul's vow. Pike de Rebeliezer says that they insisted to King Shaul, Yonason's mistake, Yonason's sin was accidental. They said, we're going to bring a, a, a sacrifice on his behalf. And that's it. The story's over. There's, there's, he didn't go against the king's decree. If someone went against the, the king's decree deserves to die. There's nothing to talk about. Innocent never went against the decree. As we mentioned earlier on, he had many alibis. He had many ways of getting out of this. He, he had, most certainly was not deserving of death. So the Jewish people, they defended you. And they said, we can't have this person die. The, Mahari, the, the Mahari Karasa, for example, says that, they said, Yonason never heard the decree. He was never bound by the decree. He's innocent. The Malbim said that they argued on two fronts. They said, even if Yonason really was guilty, we have to defend him. He defended us, we have to defend him. It's almost like he, he, he be, he's been able to get out of it. This is a, 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 an extreme situation where he went to such defense of the Jewish people, we deserve as a, as, a, as a national group to defend him. And they said it's impossible to say that after the incredible victory that Hashem made through him, that that he sinned on purpose, that he's actually guilty of death because of whatever, whatever happened. After such an amazing miracle happened from God, it's clear that he's innocent. And Al-Sheikh says something really interesting. He says, when a person does a mitzvah, that part of the body that involved in the mitzvah becomes elevated. So a person does a mitzvah with a hand, the hand becomes elevated. In the case of Yonason, it wasn't just his hand, his entire body became elevated in one instant because he gave his entire life up for Hashem. He was willing to fight the enemy and literally die for God, die to defending the Jewish people. In that moment, his entire body in one fell swoop became elevated. And if Hashem is with him in such an elevated way, it's impossible for him to sin. And therefore the Jewish people said, he can't die. The obvious question is, if he was so innocent, why did his name come up? Why did Hashem not talk to the Jewish people? You know, that, that you have to deal with both sides of the coin. Saying that he's fully innocent and not deserving of death is fine. So then why did Hashem not talk to the Jewish people? And also, why did his name come up to the lottery as the person guilty? So the Malbim asks this question, and he answers the question really interestingly. He says, Yonason was such an incredibly righteous man. He was such a tzaddik. He was such a righteous man that his accidental sins were considered and had the intensity of a purposeful sin. Usually, a person has an accident, it's an accident. Move on, it's fine. You can make it right, but it's not counted against you. It was an accident. In the case of Yonason, he was so unbelievably great. Even though he hadn't heard his, his father's decree, he was, it was held against him because of his purity. 
It was like he had done it on purpose. And in this case, he should have gone to his father and told his father, listen, I did an accident. You need to absolve me of, the, of this decree. But he hadn't. And because he didn't do that, and it was still being held against him to some degree, the lottery picked out Jonas and to enable him to have the opportunity, to have the, to have the possibility for him to get, his decree annulled, to get this decree annulled for his slate to be cleaned. So this lottery picking and Hashem not answering was all to help Yonason out so that he could get the decree annulled against him because in his particular case his accident was being held against him like a like a purposeful sin after this whole drama happens King Shol at this point broke off the chase of the Plishtim the Plishtim returned home and unfortunately the rest of King Shol's um, kingship, he's going to continuously have to fight against the Plishtim. The Plishtim were far from over. He didn't manage to capitalize or maximize the the war. At this point, he went home and continued to make many more wars against the Plishtim. And that was that was uh, that was the that was a big part of the drama of his kingship. And it's something we'll be talking about in the upcoming classes. Thank you for listening to Untold Stories of the Torah. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this channel and leaving us a review.